You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Well, we thank, we thank the Bowman family for reading today's scripture. Keep your Bibles open to 2 Samuel, if you will. If you didn't bring a Bible, you're going to find a black book in front of you. It's a pew Bible, page 326, and I invite you to turn there. It's so good every week we come and we see some faces that we haven't seen in months. And if you're one of those, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And many of you are watching and worshiping with us online. And Glenn, we're glad that you're worshiping with us as well. Uh, Let me just give just a little uh, informational piece about this fall. As scheduled, how many times have you, somebody said that in 2020? Well, this is actually going to be true. As scheduled, we're going to be on Financial Peace University this fall. And we want to invite all of you to participate with that. You know, the pandemic showed us it's important what we do with our finances. Uh, And so I want to call upon you to be a part of this. Tracy and I did this years back. I've done a lot of dumb things with money, a lot of dumb things with money. And one of the things that really helped my marriage, celebrated 25 years this year, was going through Financial Peace University and doing some of the things my dad was trying to tell me to do back in the day. And so if you've not done this, I want to invite you to be a part of this. I want 75% of our church family to go through it. Many of you have done it already. You need to have a friend, a loved one, a child, a grandchild. All three May's children are be going through this this fall. It's going to be fantastic because I don't want them on my payroll all of my life. And so I don't want them to do dumb with money like their dad did. This will be really important. If you've got a high school junior, high school senior, if you've got a college student, if you're a young couple and you want to stay married, This is important to have these discussions. And so please be a part of Financial Peace University. You'll be hearing more information about that in the days to come. Second Samuel, we're in a series on worship. Worship is giving attention to the Lord. It's giving attention to the Lord who rules and reigns over us. It's giving attention to the one that we adore and that we love. Worship is about that. You could be an agnostic, you could be an atheist, and you're worshiping something. Everyone is a worshiper. And today we're going to look at an ancient story that would have happened about 3,000 years ago that the story is going to be intrusive. It's going to be purposely intrusive. It's going to be intrusive to you personally. It's going to ask some questions of us that's going to be a little challenging. And I want us to let the ancient King David to be our worship leader in the moments to come. I do so because I want you to see the story that you heard read a moment ago, and I want you to know the backstory to it. Because as we look at it today, it's going to teach us two important principles. It's going to teach us that if worship is really, if worship is real and it's transformative, that we're going to see what we sacrifice. And worship, secondly, is we're going to see it's not about convenience, but it's also about obedience and confession. I want to introduce to you our story. I want to introduce to you three people that really helped form and frame our story here in 2 Samuel. You'll notice the first is David. If you've got your Bibles open, you'll notice in verse 1, God is angry with Israel, and David is the great king of Israel. He bears the most responsibility. Though God is upset with David, he's upset with the whole nation. Now, David does something. This isn't his finest moment. If you know anything about David, David's a big deal in the Bible. If you put about Rushmore together of the great people of the Old Testament, David has to be in the Hall of Fame. He's got to be in the Mount Rushmore. He's just got to be. In fact, David's important. How important is he? 
Other than Jesus Christ, you have more information on the person of David in your Bible than any other figure. That's how big a deal David is. But David's critical key is that David was given a promise that out of your family, out of your lineage, the Messiah will come. Of course, that Messiah would come at Bethlehem, born in the city of David to the family of David. So David is a big, big deal. Now, this is not David's finest moment. David takes a census, and as he takes this census, he immediately, almost immediately, knows he's done wrong. In fact, his general comes and says, David, you're doing wrong. And everybody knows he's doing wrong, and yet 10 months go by as he takes his census. Now note this, pay attention to this particular detail in the story. David is not taking a census of the general population. David's taking a census of the military men in the nation. As he does so, it takes 10 months to gather all this, and the conclusion of 10 months, when the numbers come in, we read this, and at the end of verse 10, David makes a confession. I have sinned greatly and what I've done. But now, O oh Lord, please take away the iniquity. Mark that word, iniquity. It means sin of your servant, for I've done foolishly. If you're going to understand the story, you're going to understand this ancient story. Understand David. Secondly, understand a man named Gad. G-A-D. He's a little-known prophet. One day, if you're a believer, you to know more about Gad in heaven. Gad essentially serves this role in the story. He walks up to the king and says, you know you've done wrong. You've got, your, you've got your choice. Pick your poison between three punishments. The three punishments he's been given by God is you can pick three years of famine. You can pick three months where your enemies triumph over your military, David. Or you can pick three days where pestilence runs through the country. You pick your poison. David chooses wisely. He says, in effect, I will trust in the mercy of God rather than the mercy of men. And he picks the third. He picks the pestilence. Well, as Gad delivers the news, a destroying angel of pestilence comes throughout the nation of Israel, destroys 70,000 men. Imagine that. It's about the population of North Richland Hills. There could have been some women who died. There could have been some children who died. We're not exactly sure. But we know that 70,000 men do die. In fact, at the end of those three days, a little bit earlier, God relents and the punishment ceases. It's always interesting to see that God wraps his wrath around mercy. That's good news for us. Here's the third important person in our story. There's David, there's Gad, and there's this guy named Aruna. Now, you can pronounce it a different way, but my half Kentucky, half Texan mispronunciation is Aruna. He's a minor character in our story but he's an essential character. See, Aruna owns a threshing floor. Now, a threshing floor is a little different than anything we'd see in the mid-cities or North Fort Worth. It would have been the highest point in elevation when they gathered the most wind necessary for threshing. And this, this guy, Aruna, owns this. Now, Aruna is likely a title. It's not Hebrew. He's a Jebusite. He's an outsider. His Hebrew name is given in this story in 2 Chronicles. This story is in your Bible twice. What happens when mama and daddy repeat something twice? What does that mean? Yeah. If it's one time in Scripture, that's enough. If it's twice, okay, God, you're really bearing down on me. His Hebrew name is Ornan. Aruna's likely a title that he's a lord or a noble. It's his threshing floor where the angel comes and he stops the pestilence. It's right there. 
right there in the ancient city of Jerusalem. Now, this is an ancient story. 3,000 years ago, this happened, and it really did happen. And it tells us two important principles. It teaches us in this series about worship, if worship is going to be transformative, if I'm going to break through to God, there's going to be two pieces. First, real worship requires confession, not self-deception. And secondly, real worship requires your sacrifice, not your convenience. Let's look at those in turn. First, real worship requires confession. If you're really going to have worship, we've looked at these details about our emotions and how our minds should be engaged and how we're to listen to messages and read scripture and how we're to sing, but we're going to have to include confession in our worship. Because the truth is, self-deception smothers worship. If worship is a fire, self-deception is a blanket that will put real worship out. Now, what is self-deception? Self-deception is that is that ability that you have, it's that ability that you have to justify something that you know isn't right. Self-deception is when your conscience is awakened, it's telling you it's not right, and yet you have this remarkable ability to silence that and just go on a self-deception. All of us are self-deceived at some level or another. All of us, every single one of us, categorically all of us. And self-deception creates a glass ceiling. We're used to glass ceilings with women's wages, we're told, but it creates a glass ceiling, and I bump up against it, and I don't break through because it's going to smother real worship. And if I want to break through and have transformative worship, I want you to watch a progression in David's life. Now, if David were here today, he would come and he would say, now, Pastor, you've chosen maybe the two worst moments of my life to preach on. Couldn't you pick out some good moments? I said, well, David, come back. Another year or two, we'll get on the good moments. But I'm going to pick two moments in David's life where he does his worst because he actually gets better. He actually has progression at his weak moments. Let's go through the first. Do you remember the, the real mess up where he royally messes up? See the pun? He royally messes up with a lady named Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11. You remember this one? David looks over, sees a woman bathing wants her, impregnates her. What's he going to do now that she's pregnant and she's married? Her husband, he sends out into battle. He gives the instructions to the commander of that battalion, of that, of that group, pull back. Her husband dies as a result of this. Now, Nathan is a prophet who comes along and has to alert David that he's wrong. Let's stop for a minute, just ask ourselves something. Do you think it's you think you can figure out when you're doing adultery? Probably so. Probably don't anybody come along and say, you're doing adultery, this is wrong. Nathan comes, he's a prophet. And Nathan, he builds this elaborate ruse, this story, comes to the throne room, I can picture it in my mind. Whether it's true or not, it comes in his mind how I picture it. It comes right in the throne room. He says, hey David, we got a rich man, and this rich man has decided to go to a poor man, a man that only has one lamb. Here's a rich man, many lambs. Wealth is measured in agriculture, livestock in that day. And he has a, he has a, a party, he has a banquet, and he takes the one lamb from the poor guy to kills it to throw a party. Now David's got, he's got some redneck in him. He's got some justice in him. So I could see him lifting up off the throne. 
He's already put a phone call in to get the posse together. He's going to round this old boy up. And he's going to build the gallows by noon for this guy. And as he's lifting up off the throne, that's when Nathan puts his finger in front of David's face and says, you're the man. You took, you took a husband's wife that wasn't yours. Now, what I want you to see in this first incident, long before the census, long before David knew what was wrong here in 2 Samuel 24, is that David needed this elaborate ruse. He needed this prophet to come along and just take a two-by-four and hit him in the back of the head and say, you're way out of line here. You're way out of line. David needed that. See, the human heart has an incredible, almost unlimited capacity to hide the truth from itself. The human heart has an almost unlimited capacity to hide the truth from itself. And if you think this is a problem 3,000 years ago with David and not with you, mm, 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 mm. the principal comes to the father and says, your son is a bully. The father says, my son's not a bully. The problem's with the school, the problem's with the kids, the problem's with the teachers, the problem's with you. And then he goes home and he won't let his his kids, brothers and sisters, play with him without the father's presence. He won't let any pets into the presence of that boy. See, the father knows, but he doesn't want to know. Same thing happened with General Patton. Went into a concentration camp where Jews had been killed, gypsies among others. The surrounding town, true story, says, we didn't know. They bring the mayor into the town, the concentration camp. Caused him to see what was being going on, ran into his nose. Next day, the mayor and the mayor's wife, the local town there in the European area, had wrote a suicide note, said, we knew, but we didn't know. Every human heart has an incredible ability for self-deception. And David, David does something important. You know, take, take this incident with adultery. Now compare it to our instant in our story later in his life where there's pride. By the way, pride is, always, pride is always more difficult to see in yourself than adultery. Pride is a lethal sin. It's like carbon monoxide. It will kill you and it's difficult to detect in yourself. Easy to detect in someone else, difficult to detect within yourself. Watch what happens. He could not earlier, he could not detect adultery which anybody should come to know adultery in their life. Watch what happens with now pride. Verse 10 of 2 Samuel chapter 24. I think you should see it on the screen. Look at the vivid imagery here. But David's heart struck him. Isn't that powerful? The literal way the Hebrew is rendered there at the end of 2 Samuel. Now, certainly that's a metaphor. A person's heart does not strike them. But the power of it, the truth of it, David's heart is all over him. Now, at this moment, Gad hasn't walked in. Remember, Nathan brought David's sin to David's attention. Now, later on, with the sin of pride, more difficult to detect than adultery by far, David picks up on it. His heart is in tune. He still does wrong, but there's a progression here. There's a growth here in David. He doesn't have to have a prophet like Gad or a prophet like Nathan come in with a two-by-four and hit him over the head and wake him up. Gad was there, but Gad gave him the choice of three punishments. Three months, three days, 
the whole thing. David's had some incredible progression here. Incredible. In fact, he sees his own self-deception there in verse 10. Mark these words, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. I have sinned greatly in what I've done. By the way, if you're going to make an apology and if you're going to confess your sin, this is critical. You need the personal pronoun next to the word sin. They need to be in close proximity. David didn't say my daddy, my mama, my principal, my preacher, my president, none of that. He said, I sinned. I sinned. He took personal responsibility of it. Friend, if you're going to have breakthrough worship, transformative worship, if you're going to really break through with God, it's going to require confession. And you're going to have to be on the lookout, on the prowl, against all forms of self-deception. So let's just take our beautiful faces and lift them up and look at the pastor for just a moment. Whether you're worshiping online or here, rate your level of self-deception right now. What's your level of self-deception? Pastor, I don't know. Let me give you two clues. If you're single, do you have a good friend? Because they're going to know your self-deception. If you're married, ask your spouse. He or she will definitely know. Here's another way to know. How long has it been since you've confessed your sin? If you want to be serious about fighting sin, then you'll confess it to God, but you'll get somebody else, a confidant. You'll bring them into your life. And you say, I need to tell you what I've done. Powerful times of worship happen when you confess. Do you need to be hit over the head with a two-by-four? Do you need a Nathan or a Gad to come in the room and take a two-by-four over your head and say, you are an idiot? You can't see what's right in front of you. Some of you are there. 20-plus years of pastoring has told me there's some incredible, sinful people who will go right to the front of the line of the church and serve in any capacity and have no awareness whatsoever of what they are and who they are. Real worship is going to require confession. Here's the second thing the story teaches us. Real worship requires sacrifice. David's got this memorable line at the end of this whole story here in 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's the way in really which the 2 Samuel book ends. He says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. Convenience is a funny thing. I'm addicted to it. I love it. But I've learned that if something's really going to be powerful and happen well, it's going to take the opposite of convenience. It's going to take sacrifice. If you are a father or mother and you've tried to put a Christmas together for your kids, you know what I'm talking about. Every, every great gift, it seemed like, Every great gift when the kids were small, you know, big gift, bring it into the living room, prepare the whole thing, and had these three dreaded, awful, God-awful words. You know these three words? Some assembly required. Oh, those are awful words. Terrible words. Through the years, you know, we would get our kids Christmas and set things up on Christmas morning, really try to knock it out of the park, have a great Christmas. And it takes a lot of work to get a Christmas to happen. I remember those geotracks one year. Geotracks was the thing. And there's there's doll houses. We had to get some doll houses back then. We got a nerf we got enough nerf guns to hold Russia off for like a, a month. I mean if they they came and attacked if nerf guns, I mean we're gonna we're gonna put them down. But but every every so often you gotta get a kid a bike, right? 
Well, those times were lean back then. And so that extra 50 bucks or whatever it was to have the bike assembled, we decided that we weren't going to spend that and we're going to build that bike. And so you, 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 you know, the kids are asleep. It's Christmas Eve. So you take the box and you sort of dump it out, hopefully on carpet. And your wife says, shh, 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 don't wake them up, don't wake them up. And you begin to assemble that bike with instructions that are written in French and pictures that are, you know. <laughs> like, my gosh. You put it together. Christmas morning, when it's done right, takes a lot of work, doesn't it? You got to get the right amount of presents. You got to get them wrapped. You got to have the tree. You got to have the right number of presents for each kid. Somebody's got to calculate up. Did we spend the same amount on each kid? The whole thing. You got to get the cookies. You got to put it all together, right? Is the video camera charged? Do we know where the batteries for the camera are? If you're going to have a successful Christmas morning, somebody's got to put the work in. You can't sleep in, you can't go to bed. Seven or eight o'clock. Look what happens. David is at, he's offered, now watch these words, a just add water worship experience. Aruna does it. Aruna says, oh, my king, come here. I've got the oxen. I've got the altar. I've got the wood. I've got everything prepared for you. It's a just add water experience. David says, uh-uh. No, we're not going to do that. And he says this memorable line, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that costs me nothing. That's a takeaway line. See, David understands something, that if worship that costs me nothing, if a worship that costs me nothing, truly it's worth nothing. Tracy and I have been married 25 years this uh, summer, and, um, you know, husbands, if if you're on top of it, you know, there's several days a year where you're tested you know what i'm saying her birthday the anniversary those kind of things you're te- here stuart stuart Penn likes to say it's a test were you listing the other 363 days a year however many of those are so tracy and i 25 years okay 25 years of marriage imagine this it's the anniversary night she's in the back room she's getting prepared hair's done makeup the whole thing hours go by okay I'm always waiting patiently. I've never sighed, never complained, the whole thing. Just the normal reaction from her husband. She walks out. She looks me over. Keep your focus here now for just a second. She looks me over. I've got a pair of cut-off jeans right at the mid-thigh. Okay, straggly. Can you picture them? No Daisy Dukes, but cut-off jeans. (laughs) T-shirt that's got a day-old mustard stain there. She says, are you ready to go? I said, sure, sweetheart. We begin, she begins to walk to the back door. I said, no, 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 come to the dining room. I've got it all set up for us. Upon the entry of the dining room, she sees no flowers, no candles. She sees stale day-old Coke. She sees fried bologna on paper plates. Now, what does that say about how I value my marriage? i tell you what it says. I'm not looking to be married 26 years. That's what that's saying, (laughs) right? Now, I bring you to my Christmas, and I bring you to my anniversary for this purpose. David's not going to worship God on paper plates. David's going to put in his best here. You see what happens? Ornan, Hebrew, the noble, Aruna, he offers him everything, a just-add-water experience. And David says, no. 
Because he knows, David does, there's always a high price to cheap worship. There's always a high price to cheap worship. And the worship that costs you nothing is worth nothing. By the way, you've got to marry private worship and public worship. If there's no private worship and all you're relying on is myself or whatever church you attend and Danny or music, if you're just, you're just letting us carry the weight for you, carry the water, no wonder you think it's boring. You've got to put private worship in and prime the pump for public worship. But so many believers today come in expecting the first several to prime the pump. David learned this, Mary learned this in Jesus' day. Mary, if you remember, was the lady over in John chapter 12. She came to Jesus. She took perfume, incense, if you will, and poured it at Jesus' feet. The story there, the Gospel of John says it was one year's wages. I looked it up this week. The average household income for our area is $65,000. Can you imagine taking a $65,000 bottle of perfume and putting it on anyone's feet? Mary learned what David learned. A worship that cost me nothing is worth nothing. Both of them took the lesson from Moses, who years before God had commanded to him. When you bring an animal into the tabernacle, don't call out of the herd a disabled, blind, mutilated animal. I don't want that. Uh-uh. Don't do that. You bring the best animal you have in your livestock. Over the book of Malachi, God will say, this is what y'all are doing. You're bringing the very worst in here. I'd rather the priest get nails and nail the doors shut and keep the place empty than what you're doing. God had commanded Moses, you bring me your best. David says this principle. I pray that we all remember it for all time. He says it in verse 24 again. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. So let's get intrusive with you for just a minute. Let's get into meddling. This is where I need to ask you some difficult questions. What value do you place on your worship? Are you worshiping God with paper plates? If paper plates is all you can afford, if that's all you can bring, amen, do it. Will you give God what is your best, or are you giving him what's left over? What's your times of personal worship look like? Is there any formation to that? You know what a personal time of worship is? It's you and a Bible. It's you and music, singing, praise. Let's ask this, talking about bringing your best. Do you arrive late to worship consistently? I love you. You know, what? if you've been here in this church long enough, and I tell you I love you, it's coming. I've got a roundhouse, it's coming. I love you, but some of you show up at the welcome or you show up at the sermon. Uh-uh. No. What would your boss think if you showed up 10, 15 minutes late? Would you do that at work? I wouldn't. My dad taught me not to do that. Pastor, it's so hard. I'm, I know it's hard. But it's about a priority. It's assembling things. Maybe Sunday morning needs to start on Saturday night. Making that being here on time when the first note is sung. 
honoring the Lord, honoring those who've prepared all week. I wonder how many music lessons these people have gone through to do what they do with excellence. See, true worship is always a sacrifice. It always is. And if your worship's costing you nothing, no wonder you think so little of it. It may cost you your time or your possessions. But I want you to ask David, because David will tell you that the sacrifice is always worth it. By the way, you see what God does here in the story? David starts out in pride, counting his military. You see that? He's counting in a census his fighting men. And what does God do? God sends a plague that kills 70,000 men. Real worship's happening in David's life right before your eyes. The idol is being removed. The one who wrote, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, was trusting in chariots and horses and military men and had to be reminded that his death grip on his military had to be removed and he was to put the, his trust in his God. God will always do that, by the way, if you're one of his children. He will always take your fingers and prod them off through difficult experiences and tell you, don't trust, don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in horses. Don't put your functional trust in your military. Put it in me. He's the only God. He's the only being that's worth all of your trust and all of your worship. But I'm almost done. There's one thing that you're going to want me to show you. I told you this story was in your Bible twice. And over in Chronicles, we read this in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Solomon, that's David's son, began to build the house of the Lord, the temple. In Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, note those words, Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan or Aruna, the Jebusite. Do you know Mount Moriah? Mount Moriah is where God had commanded Abraham, maybe a thousand years before David, to sacrifice his son. Abraham's got the knife above his son. He's about to plunge it into his heart. And all of a sudden, at Mount Moriah, at the threshing floor where the angel stops, Abraham looks in the thicket, in the shrubs, in the hedges is a ram. At the very location, God had appointed his providence right where the angel had stopped his work. And the temple would be built. And a thousand years after David, David's son would come. And he would be crucified within the shadow of that very location. Crucified. You see, if worship is going to happen for you, it doesn't fundamentally begin with your sacrifice. It begins with his sacrifice for you. Christ was that ram sacrificed so that you could have direct access to God. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.